Our sermon text this morning is taken from 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 through 27. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all the calamities and your distresses, distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribes of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clan, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And where he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? This, there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people's people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. That water went down hard. <laughs> well, we are continuing our series here, and we're going to see that uh, Saul is publicly ordained or, or, or introduced as king. It's like his coronation day, publicly. Uh, last week, we saw that he was privately anointed as king by Samuel, and told that he was the one that God has chosen to be king. And yet Saul didn't tell anybody. He didn't even tell his father when he got back home uh, what had happened as far as that goes. In our text today, as I said, we will see that he is publicly now uh, coronated as king and recognized as God's choice. That's important to understand. It's God's choice for the people. But we'll notice that before he does that, before he publicly announces Saul as king, he literally reiterates truth. To the people. It's always right, it's always the right time to speak the truth. And here at this coronation party, this happy celebration uh, for Saul, he begins by proclaiming God's word, the truth, to the people. Look at verses 17 through 19. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzvah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I brought, up Israel, I, I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So we see this, this pointed, uh, direct, 
statement. I mean, this should be time of celebration. Um, and, and, you know, we want to you know, we want to be sure that we don't embarrass anybody. Right. I mean, this is a public uh, ceremony. We want this to go nice and smooth. And and if that's the case, you probably don't want Sam. You'll be in the MC. He's a prophet of God who who preaches forth the word of God, tells the truth no matter what, and that's what he does here to begin this ceremony. He, he, through God's instruction, obviously. It's God who wants to remind these people of truth. And truth is always relevant. Truth is always relevant. We have to remember that. I mean, some would say, again, there's, there's, there's a time we should maybe hide the truth. We want to hide the truth of this situation because it, it just would make things hard. <laughs> like this happy celebration, right, of the coronation of King Saul. But again, that's not what happens. And so we have, a, we have this, this wonderful display and this wonderful instruction for us as God's people that reminds us it's always right to remind people of truth. And that's all God does here. Who delivered you from, from Egypt? I did. Who delivers you from all your calamities? I did. Who's the mighty God who protects and provides for, for all your needs? I am. And yet you have rejected me and said, set a king before us. Give us a king. So go ahead and gather because I'm going to do it. That's what this is. I mean, you talk about a a somber moment. You talk about a, a real start to the celebration. You can hear a pin drop at this point. Gather the tribes together. I will reveal your king. So let's notice what happens here. And by the way, let me just say about what I just said. The truth must always be told. But it is true that we can use discernment in how we tell that truth. And the Bible is very clear, sometimes gently, sometimes boldly, but always. So that's the rule, right? We, we sometimes gently tell the truth. Sometimes it calls for a bold telling of the truth. But it's always right to tell the truth, and it's always done in love, Paul said. Tell the truth in love and gentleness, not to get somebody angry, not to prove your point. If you're telling truth just so it makes you look good, then you, you better watch how you're telling that. Truth is for the glory of God. Truth is for the love of others. And that's really what Samuel's doing. He's loving these people by, by reminding them, you are forsaking the only God who can help you. You're forsaking the only one who's been faithful to you. And that God is going to, to even be gracious at this moment and give you what you're asking for. So let's notice what happens in verse 20, the public choosing of Saul. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin was taken by Lot. So that's what's going on. They've got all the tribes of Israel, hundreds of... The number is, is, is varies in, in estimates. Could be as many as a million or more, a million and a half. But you got all these people gathered by tribes, gathered by people in those tribes, families, clans, and, and that's what they're going to do. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna use lots. And, and the, the reason is Samuel knows the cantankerous group he's dealing with. He knows they're so, so petty and that they would not... They would be upset by whoever Samuel announced by himself as king. So to prove this is from God, they're going to use the lot system. 
So I'll explain that in just a moment, but let's, now that we've got that set, let's notice what's going on here. You're going to draw straws, basically. You're going to flip a coin, whatever. But look. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by the clan. So all the other clans, all the other tribes backed away. Now you've just got the tribe of Benjamin, which is still a lot of people. So he brought the tribe of Benjamin near its, its clans, by its clans, and the clan of the Meretrites was taken by Lot. And so you separate that clan and that family. And finally, Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then uh, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clan. I think I just read all that. Okay, so... Brought by Lot. So, so they inquired again. But the, okay, here we go. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by his clans, and then he brought the, by the Metrots was taken, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Now, let's stop a second. I, want to, I love what we see in verse 21. But they sought him, they inquired and said, is, he, he could not be found. And in verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? Which I answer, by the way, prophetically looking forward, yes, praise the Lord, there is another man that's coming. This is not the Messiah. This is just... Well, this is just a, a, a fellow who likes to hide in the baggage. <laughs> because they couldn't find him. So they said, is there somebody else? No, the Lord's going to reveal he's over here hiding. So they even had to find, they even had to have God reveal where this guy was hiding. They, they couldn't do that. Couldn't find him. He's hiding himself among the baggage. And by the way, this is, I'm not going to go into great detail here, but this is a revelation of a character flaw that will always be seen in Saul. He always ran. In, in times of danger. He, he always, in a sense, chickened out. What about Goliath? He's, he's not out there fighting. Um, th this man finally dies of suicide on the field. So, so, so and, and his other character flaws that we're going to see as we go through this book of just the greed and the power hungriness and the selfishness. So here we see him right out of the gate. It's, there's pressure, and what does he do? He hides. But then they ran, and they took him from there. <laughs> And when he stood among the... It's just so weird when you think about this because it's just taking us back to chapter 7 and 8 where uh, uh, early on even where we see Dagon, right, fall in the presence of the mercy seat. The, the god Dagon falls down and they had to go find him and they had to pick him up and they had to bring him back to his spot. And that's what they're doing here with their first king. They're going to go find him. They're going to pick him up. Come on, Saul. Let's put you back where you're supposed to be. So they ran, they took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king! <laughs> who hides in the baggage. No, this is... This is the craziest thing as we look at this as humans and think, wow, how futile we really are. I mean, 
let's, took it, let, let's go back to him because this is God choosing him. God is doing that. God did choose him. He said, hey, there's not another man like him among your people. And what God is really saying there, that meets the criteria that you desire a man like the other nations. This is what you guys want. And I'm picking him on your, based on your criteria. And there's not another man among you that meets that criteria like this man. And that is not a compliment. The lot system, again, is mentioned. I want to talk about that. It's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's mentioned 70 times in the Old Testament. And seven times it was used, we see, in the, in the New Testament. And it was probably, as I mentioned, like sticks, the short stick, right? You draw sticks, and whoever gets the short stick is the guy. Or maybe it was like dice. We see that kind of in the New Testament, where it's possible like dice. You roll the dice, and whatever happens, whatever number you predetermined, that's the winner. Or it literally could be like flipping a coin or like a raffle. You put something in a, in a thing, shake it, a hat, shake it up, and you pull it out, and there's the lot. This is the one. And that's what, what they did here over and over again. And they believed in that. Uh, it, it, we see in Psalms 16, verse 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, right? The dice are thrown into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They believed that, yes, they were picking straws or throwing dice or whatever, but it was God controlling them. They believed that. So whatever it landed on, we'll take that as being from God. And God used that system as we see here. So there's no question that God had chosen this man. But no other information is given, like I say, about what that was. And nowhere in the New Testament especially is it ever recommended or even taught that Christians should rely on this system to discern the will of God. We have the Word of God. We rely on the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. We don't flip dice. Should I move to Seattle? Snake eyes, yes. Anything else, no. You know, we don't do that. But let's get back to this. What's going on? Why... The tribe of Benjamin, some of you might be asking. That's another funny thing. The tribe of Benjamin. See, most Bible students would have been waiting for that lot to fall on the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah. Why? Genesis 49.10, we see this prophecy. The scepter, the rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This is talking about a perpetual king in, from the tribe of Judah. This is a reference ultimately to Christ, the Lion of Judah. But why in the world is this first king taken from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin? Is there a problem? Is there, is there a contradiction in the Bible? Because every king after this is, is from the tribe of Judah. What's going on? There is no contradiction, by the way. That text simply says, once the scepter does come to Judah, it will never depart. Didn't say it had to be the first king. It does say that once the scepter comes to Judah, it will never depart. But I also want to go a little deeper. I don't like how the ESV uh, translates it. I love the, the HCSB, the Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible. Look, look at the end King James Version, by the way, and the New International Version. They, they all have this, this much more um, direct prophecy, if you will, Look at how, how it says there, verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the people belongs to him. 
heed. And again, that's exactly what it's saying in the ESV, but it's just a little harder. To, uh, he, he's the only one that deserves tribute. He's the only one that deserves all things. But the, the other versions just make it very plain of what it's saying there. We're talking about a person who will finally come in the tribe of Judah, and it all belongs to him, rightfully saying so. And all the people will bow before him. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow to the glory of God, that Jesus is Lord. Now, having said that, there's no contradiction here, but also I think there's another reason that, that we see Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin chosen. And I think it's to highlight the futility of human beings and their choice. <laughs> it's to highlight the futility of our choice and when we rely on our understanding versus rely on God totally. The basis on which man chooses is tall and good looking. Right? That's what we're seeing here. Your choice, what you're, what you're based on is, is he tall? <laughs> is he good looking? And by the way, it's kind of interesting to note that the Bible talks about, they said we want a king like all the other nations. What are they like? They're tall. Really, the Bible said that? It actually does. Very interestingly. Here's just three examples. The Canaanites were tall. The Anakites were tall. The Amorites were tall. Look at Numbers 13, 32, talking about the Canaanites. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that it devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are great, of, great height. They're of great height. They're tall. The Anakites mentioned in Deuteronomy 2.10. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Hmm, that nation was tall. Then you got the Amorites mentioned in Amos 2.9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. So this again was a common description of the other nations. It seemed like they all had tall people. <laughs> and so it's interesting here that they bring that point. He was Head and shoulders above everybody else. He's tall, just like your other kings you want. He's, he's good-looking and mighty and tall, and, and he looks like the part. Somebody once said that people get the leaders they deserve. And so that's what we see. God is saying, okay, here's our criteria. Here's the perfect. It meets the criteria beautifully. <laughs> and then look what we see in verse 25. Samuel lays out some standards for the king. It's called the mishpat in Hebrew. Mishpat. We'll talk about it in just a minute. Let's read verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties. That rights and duties in Hebrew is mishpat. So Samuel told the people the mishpat of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel said to all, all the people, or I'm sorry, then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. So what is this mishpat? Again, rights and duties of a king is what that means. So Samuel says, all right, God has appointed him. Now here, king, are the rights and obligations as established by God for you. And again, it's clear that the purpose of this mishpat was to provide a definition of function for the king in Israel for both the benefit of the king and the benefit of the people, protection of both. Now, this mishpat, by the way, was kind of, there's two different kinds we see here in Samuel. Back in chapter 8, do you remember what, what Saul, or I'm sorry, what Samuel warned them about the king? They said, your king will do this. He's going to, he's going to bring up 
all, all of your sons and daughters. He's going to bring them into conscription. He's going to put them in the military. He's going to use them as servants in his home. Uh, he's going to need all these people to keep his, his grounds going for his, his, his own sake. He's going to take a tenth of all your goods. He's going to take your horses and your cattle and all your, your stuff for himself. This is what's going to, this is, this is the mishpat of your king. This is his rules and regulations. This is what you're going to be living under. But that's not what God intended. There's a different, different mishpat, if you will. And, and this is probably what, what's, what Samuel writes out here is probably just recounting Deuteronomy chapter 17, which begins by saying, your king will not lay up horses for himself. He will not seek out wealth. He will not seek out riches for himself. He will not be like those other kings. And then it goes on to say in verses 18 through 20 of Deuteronomy 17, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he shall read it uh, he, he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be filled up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. What is that saying? Very interesting that we grab hold of this. The kingship, as ordained by God, even though he was the ruler of the people and he was the one who carried out justice and judgment based on the law, he himself was under the law. He himself had to obey the law. He had to write that law and he had to keep it with him. That's what, that's what Samuel did for Saul. I'm writing this down for you. I'm going to put it before the Lord. This is the mishpah of the king. This is the rules and regulations and you are to obey it. You are under it. I think it's interesting what, what Ralph, or Dale Ralph Davis says here. He says, Israel's king is not actually a king, but a vice king. Himself under the law of Yahweh. Israel's true king. Royal submission to that law should eliminate tyranny and abuse. And that's the reason for it. That's, that's, that's the beauty of God's sovereignty in this. He, yes, he'll raise up earthly kings to, to be vice kings of his. Really, every ruler, every politician, every person in government, they are vice rulers. They are ruling under the ultimate authority of God himself who sets up all rule on earth. That's why Romans says that we are to obey those in authority over us because there is no authority but that of God. Now look, what happens then? Tyranny is mentioned here, right? If that king obeys the law of God and himself realizes there's a right and wrong and himself realizes that I am going to be obedient to God myself as I rule the people, then he won't be a tyrant. He won't look to himself and say, I'm going to rule in my own power. I am the sovereign. That's what what it's saying there. I think it's interesting throughout history that we've seen that it really never happens pretty much. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. <laughs> Humans are weak and sinful. Otto J. Scott in his book, James the First, The Fool as King, it, it, he says this. He says that it was this kind of, 
of truth that the royalty is subject to divine law that led John Knox to call for charges of murder and adultery to be brought against Queen Mary Stuart. I mean, at that time in the 1560s, the king or queen, they were looked as, at as the sovereign who was the law. You weren't you were just above the law, you were the law if you were the sovereign king or queen. So here's John Knox saying, no, no, this is a human being under God's authority. And if they break the law of God, they also must be tried by the law of God. So here's my thing today. I'm not going to get off on all this uh, stuff right now. This is not actually the sermon for that. But I'm going to say, here's our application right now. Not should we revolt against a government that's not obeying God? I'm not saying that. Should we obey a government no matter what they tell us to do? I didn't say that. Didn't help you much there on either side. (laughs) But that's not our big point today. Here's my question for you today. If a king is under the commands of God, that's what it's talking about in that context, the mishpat. It's the commands of God, the law of God, as given at Mount Sinai. If a king is under the law, what about us? Let's look at our accountability to God right now. That's what's going to matter 5,000 years from now. How accountable were you to God? If he holds the kings accountable, then we're accountable. Now you say, Greg, the law can't save us. We're not under the law. Paul said we're not under the law. We don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are gone. Jesus did away with them, right? Nope. He did not. He actually came to fulfill them. So then you say, what is this about the law? I think it's important that we as Christians, again, are reminded in this context that the law of God is given to his people for their benefit. Originally, when the law was given, it was for the benefit of the people. And guess what? That is still true today. God's law is good. It is righteous. It is moral. It is holy. Now, yes, we cannot keep it and earn our salvation simply because we cannot keep it. (laughs) We cannot do it. And, And therefore, the law does not save us. The Ten Commandments actually condemn us. They simply reveal how inadequate we are compared to the holiness of God. And therefore, they actually end up pronouncing judgment on us. Yes. Yes, that's what the law ends up doing. But we need to understand that there is a goodness of that law apart from our salvation, which is in Christ alone and in his perfect merit alone. That's our salvation. By faith alone in Christ alone are we made right with God. But once that happens, that law is now our guide, not to keep us saved, but because we are saved. I like another thing that Dale Ralph Davis says. I want us to kind of remember this. I want want you to see this. He says, you will will never view the law incorrectly so long as you remember that Exodus 22 comes before Exodus 23 through 17. Now, I want want to give that mental picture in mind. This, This is very helpful, I think, for Christians. We need to see this. What is this portion of the Scripture? This is the giving of the Ten Commandments is what this is. This portion of Scripture there in Exodus. When God gives His commands. But look at this, Exodus 22, that verse comes before verses 3 through 17. 
Verses 3 through 17 are all of the, the commands, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Honor your father, your mother. All, you know, thou shalt not lie. All those, thou shalt not kill. All the law. 3 through 17. But before the law, look at the statement, what God says. He says, I delivered you out of Egypt. I conquered your enemies. I gave you salvation. The people of Israel were already set free by the grace of God before he gave the law. They weren't keeping that law in order for God to say, oh, good, you've done a great job. Now I'll choose you as my people and, and you will now be mine because you've done such a great job keeping the law. No, God already chose them as his people and delivered them from bondage. Then he said, now that you are my free people by my grace, here's how to live my commandments. Do you see that? Man, I hope, I hope that helps us, right? I mean, basically, he's saying, I've set you free from bondage. I've set you free from, from, from sin through Christ. And now that you are my children, now that you've been saved by my grace, I want to bless you <laughs> with my commandments. When we look at that, it's a whole different perspective. Listen to this. You do not keep them, the commandments of God, you do not keep them in order to earn freedom. We keep them in order to enjoy freedom. Think about that as a Christian. We do not keep that because of grace, because of Christ, and, and that's our salvation in him. He paid the price. He took the wrath of God for us. So because of that, we do not keep the commandments in order to earn our freedom. We keep the commandments in order to enjoy our freedom, the freedom that Christ bought us. There is no life worth living more so than the life that's at peace with God the Father. And his law brings peace. His law brings us good. It really does. And if we approach it this way, I think it'll revolutionize how we live and why we keep the commands. But at any rate, I just want to bring that in, okay? But, but, but as we begin to, to look at verses 26 and 27, we see something else that's very important about kings. And, and that is that kings bring division. Kings bring division. They always have, and they always will. They bring division, and we'll see this. Well, they always will until the fulfillment. But let me, let me get to this. Verse 26. Saul also went to his home. So after, after the prophet lays down this law to the king, says this is, this is the mish, mishpat for the king, his responsibilities to God and to you, yes, here it is. Now everybody go home. So he dismisses. And look what happened. Saul also went to his home at Gabeah. And look at this. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Verse 27, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no respect or no present. But he held his peace. Again, a, I believe a messianic picture. Not that Saul at all is a type of Christ. But those who despised Christ cried out against him. And yet, what did Jesus do? He held his peace. Didn't open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. But think about this. What we see here is two groups. 
We have a king coronated, and right away you have division, those who are for the king and those who are against the king. And it happens, it's been happening ever since. <laughs> Every election, what do we have? We have people for the president and people against the president-elect, whoever it is. You're going to have those for and those against. Those who follow the king, as we see here, and those who despise the king why? Because kings naturally will bring division. And that analogy, by the way, points to Christ himself. This, now, again, Saul's not the analogy of Christ, but this situation is kings being rejected by people or accepted. Jesus himself said it would happen. This, this, he, he said this. Verse or Luke 12, 51, Jesus said, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. I've come to bring division. That's an odd thing to say. Jesus said it. He's the king of kings. He said, I've come to bring division. And, and what we see there is just like those worthless men of Saul's day said, how can this man save us? Who's this guy? Who does he think he is? How can he save us? So they said in Jesus' day, right? John 6, 42. What did some people say? Is this Jesus? Is, this, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Who does he think he is? Who's this man? Can this man save us? No way. We won't follow that guy. And they still respond that way today, right? Folks, we would respond that way had God not graciously, graciously touched our hearts like he did back here. I'm going to read it again. 1 Samuel 10, 26 and 27. I love this. Saul also went home to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor. Why did they go? Whose hearts God had touched. God touched their heart, and they followed that king. By God's grace today, we preach the gospel. We point people to Christ, the king of kings. And what happens? By, by the grace of God, he touches hearts, and some people follow. And as you know, you have friends that say, no, 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 I won't follow this man. Who, who do you think you are? Who does he think he is to tell me what to do? I will not submit to his standards and to his law. I mean, think about that. What is a king? He's a ruler. And Jesus is the king, <laughs> the ultimate king, the king of kings, the one who demands all to follow him. Total allegiance and obedience to his commands. That's what it really means to follow Christ. Again, don't get it mixed up. We cannot say, oh, he's got some commands, so I better keep those commands so that he will let me in his kingdom. No, we cannot keep the commands. We're sinful. But he touches our hearts, puts a new heart in us by his grace, transforms us by the gospel. And we're made perfect by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're born again into his kingdom. Now we're, we're his sons and daughters. And what do we do? He's now our king. We are his subjects. He is our master. We are his servants. And we keep his commandments. That's what Jesus said, is it not? He said, if you love me, 
Go to church once or twice a month. Put a bumper sticker on your car and wear a t-shirt every now and then that says you love me. No, he says, if you love me and I am your king, keep my commandments. So our flesh says, no, I will not have a king reign over me. That's what our flesh says. So again, it's only by the grace of God. If you are a Christian today and you love God's commands, thank God for his grace being shed abroad in your heart. Because we don't do that naturally as humans. I want to go to Romans 1 really quickly as we close. Romans 1, 18 through 25. It's a little bit of scripture here, but I want, it's a great parallel to what we've just seen because this is the response of human beings to the king of the universe. When we're confronted with the holiness of God and his sovereignty and that he is the ultimate ruler who demands total allegiance and obedience to him, our flesh, our sinful flesh says, no, he will not rule over me. And that's what Paul was talking about in Romans 1, 18 through 25, when he said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now we talked about truth already. God is truth. And yet humans in their sinfulness suppress truth, do not want to be confronted by truth, and they'll develop their own truth. Verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Hmm. We're without excuse. The truth is what? In the beginning, God. That's truth. What did God do? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Any human being that walks outside and looks around, you cannot deny that the Bible is true because I see a creation. I see heavens and I see the earth. And I see the beauty of all that glorious creation. And that's what Paul is saying. You cannot deny the truth. You are without excuse. His power is seen, his deity, his glory. Goes on to say, for although they knew God. Now, this is, this is the truth, folks. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, what Paul is setting up here is a courtroom against all human beings. This is all mankind. We all fit into this. And all of us, are declared guilty by God because his glory is there and our sinfulness rejects it. And it admits here, for though they knew God, in the depths of the atheist's heart is the knowledge that there's a God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. That's the problem. It's not that people truly do not believe in a God. They refuse to recognize him and honor him as God. And they're futile in their thinking, and therefore their hearts are darkened. That goes on to say, claiming to be wise, they became fools. What a testimony of mankind. The more we claim wisdom, the more we think we know 
how things should go and we depart from the perfect law of God, the more chaos ensues. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. <laughs> so instead of worshiping God, the creator of all things, and submitting to him and his law, they reject the creator of the universe and they begin to worship little things that look like spiders and snakes and little creepy things that creep around. Therefore, God gave them up. Scariest words in the, in, the, in the Bible. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God. Look at this. Here's, here's what man's depravity does. This is the bottom line of what sin is. It's an exchanging of the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That is what sin ultimately is. When you reject the kingship of God and you set yourself up as God, pride, arrogance, rebellion, that's, that's, what, that's what sin is. My arrogance says I, I can rule myself. I do not need God. An unwillingness to submit to God as our Lord and King always results in confusion, pain, suffering, brokenness, heartache, misery. It, it cannot go anywhere else. So in our natural being, we set up kings in place of God. We got to worship something. We're made that way. But our rebelliousness says, no, I'm not going to submit to God's rules, but I'll worship something. And it ends up always being us. And these kings that we set up, some people, it's work and success. Your work and success. That's your God. That's your king. Your, your success at work. I've got to do this. I've got to do better. I've got to make that promotion. For some people, it could be family. I mean, that's our king we set up, it's our family. Nobody interferes with our family. This is what we do. We're not doing anything. I can't go on a mission trip. I got a family reunion. Or I got, the, you know, whatever. It's about family, family, family. That's all that matters. That can be idolatrous, folks. That, that can be a, a, a king that you set up and, and say, this is, this is all there is. What did Jesus say again? He who doesn't love, he, he, he who loves father and mother more than me, it's not worthy of me. Unless you hate father and mother, he literally says, and follow me, you're not worthy of me. But that's my, that's my family, Lord. They, they're going to family first, family first. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God literally is the only one in the universe who can scream out, me first. And it's right. Me first. Money for some. For some, it may be your Christian testimony even. That's a weird one, huh? Your Christian testimony. What I mean by that is this image you've built of yourself, your self-righteousness, your knowledge of the Bible, your attendance in church, all your years of teaching. Look at me. And you guard that shiny testimony with everything because that's your king. Look at me. Just like the Pharisees did. Look at all the laws we've kept and the things we do. In closing, here's, here it is. We must 
daily kneel before and pledge allegiance to Christ that he may dethrone every king that tries to usurp his throne. That's what we do as Christians every day. Every day we kneel before him and we pledge our allegiance totally to him. And he conquers all those other things in our lives as long as we're looking unto Jesus daily as our only sole source of hope and strength and guidance. May God give us that grace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that guides us into all truth. And even though that truth is hard, and even though that truth hurts us, it is an ultimate gift of grace. It's because of your love for us that you give us these words. And that you command us not to love anything more than you. And you call us to strict obedience to your commands. So, Father, we pray today that you give us a love for your word, a love for your commands, and the, 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 the ability to obey them for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.